Well, today is Mother's Day, and in the providence of God, we have arrived at one of the most touching scenes in all the Gospels, where Mary anoints the feet of Jesus. We don't know whether Mary was a mother, but when we reconstruct what happened at Bethany by comparing both John and Matthew's accounts, this woman's extraordinary act will reflect more broadly on mothers in general and the kinds of acts that they engage in. So with that being said, let's turn to John chapter 11 briefly this morning, and then we will move quickly to John chapter 12. So John chapter 11, and then John chapter 12. Jesus has healed Lazarus. And now he has disappeared into the wilderness, knowing that sinister forces are conspiring against him in Jerusalem. We do not know how long Jesus was down in the wilderness, but we do know that Jesus determined that he would die at Passover. And verse 55 brings the Passover feast into view. So let's read from verse 55 through the end of the chapter. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. And I will have a great deal more to say about the Passover as we work into Jesus' final week. Suffice it to say here that many Jews who were celebrating Passover were indeed looking for another prophet deliverer like Moses to arrive and to deliver them from Roman servitude. But not all the Jews were actually prepared to embrace Jesus. The chief priests and the Pharisees had already conspired to arrest him. And these verses speak of a divided opinion concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. And of course, they also fill us with expectation that the next Passover is going to be like a Passover unlike any previous Passover in Jewish history. The next episode also signals that the coming Passover is a unique Passover. It begins in chapter 12 and verse 1. John writes, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. 
so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. The story that we just read is plain enough on a first reading. Let's make five observations. First, notice the timing of the event. It occurred six days before the Passover. That's verse 1. This would place the event on Saturday evening, the week before Jesus was crucified, Saturday evening around dinner time. The next day, Jesus will ride his donkey into Jerusalem in an event that we traditionally call the triumphal entry. The following Saturday, Jesus will lie in a tomb. Second, Mary's expression of love for Jesus is doubtless rooted in her gratitude for her recently resurrected brother, Lazarus. Thirdly, the cost of the ointment was remarkable. Nard is an oil extracted from the root and spike of the nard plant, which is grown in India. In the ancient world, transporting rare ointments at considerable distances was really very, very challenging, and it really enhanced their value. They didn't have FedEx in those days, and FedEx things overnight, obviously. Judas' estimate put the ointment at 300 denarii. A denarius was a day's wage for a common laborer. So leaving off Sabbaths and other holidays or holy days, 300 days or 300 denarii was equivalent to a year's income. Imagine your whole year's income being lavished on Jesus. That is an astonishing amount of nard. Fourthly, the narrative offers us a window into the soul of Judas. This is the only place in the New Testament where he's actually called a thief. And Judas is not motivated by altruism for the poor, but avarice. What you see on the surface is not really a reflection of what's truly in his heart. And then fifthly, notice how Jesus interprets this event as preparation for his burial. Now, it's quite likely that Mary herself did not fully understand that Jesus was about to be crucified and buried. On three previous occasions, Jesus had spelled out to his disciples that he was going to die and be resurrected the third day, and none of them understood Nevertheless, Jesus appropriates the act as a kind of symbolic preparation of his body for his own entry into the tomb. So Mary's act, in this sense, is similar to the prophecy of Caiaphas that we encountered last week. Caiaphas prophesied that one would die for the nation, but even while he was prophesying, he prophesied more than he understood. That's what we discovered last week. And I suggest to you that Mary's act probably signaled more than she herself even understood. Now, all that is plain enough on a first reading. However, the much deeper significance of this story becomes apparent 
when you discover how different Gospels use the same story. That's where the real intrigue is. In fact, this is one of my favorite examples in my Gospel of Matthew class to teach how different Gospels use different pericopes. Do you recall the term pericope? All right, that's a technical name for an individual, discrete account, a story in the Gospels. The Gospels, as you know, are just full of stories. Individual pericopes. And these individual stories of pericopes taken together form the larger story of Jesus of Nazareth. Very often the section headings in our English translations actually mark out the different pericopes. Usually they're pretty good about noticing when a different story begins. All right? Now recall, there were no chapter or verse divisions in the original, nor were there section headings. All right? But those section headings often mark out the different stories. Now, gospel writers use these pericopes as the basic units, the basic building blocks of our larger accounts of Jesus of Nazareth. But here's what's curious about them. They don't always tell the same stories, and when they do tell the same stories, they don't always give us the identical details. And that's very deliberate. Actually, it would be impossible to relate all the stories about Jesus. So the gospel writers will take some of the different stories and sometimes give us different details, and they'll move them around and place them in different places in their gospels to make thematic points about Jesus. And when you're aware of this, you can really come to understand the intent behind the different gospels. Sometimes the writers take these stories out of linear or chronological order on purpose. Right? And if you're not aware of that, you might think it's a contradiction. There's no contradiction. They deliberately shuffle the stories around because they're trying to give us different portraits of Jesus. So with that being said, let's try to understand the story that we read today, the story of Mary's anointing, by contrasting John's account and Matthew's account. I think this will be very interesting for us. And by the way, we did this way back when we were in Matthew. We actually contrasted Matthew's account with John's account. So we're going to do that again. But we won't do exactly the same thing today. All right? So here in John, would you first of all observe the placement of the pericope? It follows the raising of Lazarus, a story found only in John's gospel. You don't get that in Matthew. Further, it's situated between two plots. At the end of chapter 11, we read of a plot to kill Jesus. Beginning with John 12 and verse 9, we read of a plot to kill Lazarus. And in between those two plots, Jesus interprets Mary's act as a preparation for his own burial, like Lazarus was buried. Notice also when this event happened chronologically. Again, chapter 12, verse 1 dates it precisely. This is when it actually happened. Six days before Passover. And notice what happens beginning with John 12 and verse 12. There John begins to relate the story of the triumphal entry. That's the following Sunday. The next day, Jesus will ride his donkey to Jerusalem. And Jesus has been anointed like a king. 
And doubtless the aroma of the ointment filled the breeze that was fanned by those waving palm branches as he just moved steadily toward the city. But already the king coming to the city has interpreted his anointing as a preparation for his burial. He will be buried by the end of the week. Now, with that in place, let's turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. And we are going to engage in a little detective work this morning. All right, Matthew chapter 21. Matthew is going to give us a much more detailed account of the triumphal entry than does John. The story in Matthew runs from... Chapter 21, verse 1 through verse 11. And if you're looking at an ESV, you'll notice a section heading above the pericope, or chapter 21, reads, The Triumphal Entry. Now, according to John's Gospel, Mary's anointing occurred the day before the triumphal entry, right? So when you get to 21 and verse 1, he's already been anointed. So where do you think the anointing should be in John's Gospel? Chapter 20, right? You would expect it in chapter 20, but it's not there. So where did it go? Well, let's conduct a little survey. In the remainder of chapter 21, we read of Jesus cleansing the temple. That was dramatic. And that set off a firestorm against Jesus. Jesus in 21 also cursed the fig tree. And verse 18 tells us what happened, that that happened the morning after the donkey ride. That would have been Monday. He cursed the fig tree. Matthew 21 also tells that Jesus' authority was challenged by the Jews. And Jesus really got into a scuffle with them. And Jesus also tells a couple parables in Matthew 21. Then in Matthew 22, Jesus tells another parable. And we find him embroiled in controversy with the Jews over the issue of authority. There's a whole series of questions that are put to Jesus and a lot of dialogue that goes back and forth. Then in Matthew 23, Jesus preaches a blistering sermon against the scribes and the Pharisees, some of his harshest words in all the New Testament. And then in Matthew 23, Jesus also predicts Jerusalem's destruction. In Matthew 24, Jesus leaves the city. Also in Matthew 24, from the summit of the Mount of Olives, Jesus delivers the Olivet Discourse. And it goes on for two rather complex chapters, 97 verses, including some of the most complex material in all the New Testament. And all of that seems to have happened on Tuesday. All right? So there's a lot that's happened since the donkey ride. And it's been very, very complex. And now look at Matthew 26 and verse 2. Jesus tells us the Passover is now two days away. If Passover was Friday, this brings us up to Wednesday. 
All right, so we're at Wednesday at this point. And Matthew 26 and verse 3 tells that the chief priests and the elders gathered in Caiaphas' palace to finalize their plans to kill Jesus. Friends, we are a long way away from the previous Saturday when Mary anointed Jesus. But suddenly, beginning with Matthew 26 and verse 6, Matthew tells a story of Jesus being anointed at Bethany. Matthew does not date the story precisely. He simply inserts a story about Jesus being anointed at Bethany. Now, in the last five chapters, we've had a lot of really important material. But suddenly, here's this story of anointing, which, if it's the same story that John told, happened way back on Saturday. Now, skip the story momentarily and notice what happens next. In verse 14, Matthew tells us of the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. Then in verse 17, Matthew tells of Jesus' final Passover, which, of course, was followed immediately by Jesus' arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. In other words, Matthew situates the story of Jesus' anointing not on the previous Saturday but immediately before those final tumultuous events that ended Jesus' life. Again, with all that Matthew recorded since the donkey ride, we would have lost sight of this event a long time ago. But Matthew is not about to let us lose sight of it. He doesn't want us to forget. He's going to tell you this story right before Jesus goes to his cross. So, with that in mind, let's read Matthew's account and pay very careful attention to the differences. Matthew 26, verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So question, is the story that we just read the same story that we read back in John chapter 12? There were some important differences. Let's quickly work through the similarities and differences just to be certain, and then we will discover the deeper meaning of the passage. In both stories, Jesus has come to Bethany, a tiny town outside Jerusalem. It's hard to imagine that similar events 
could have happened in such close proximity. I mean, how many wealthy women in Bethany determined to anoint Jesus shortly before he died? In both accounts, the ointment that is poured on Jesus is nard. Now, Matthew's account doesn't actually say that, but if you look at Mark's account, which is nearly identical to Matthew's account, which everybody agrees is the same story, the ointment is nard. In both accounts, the amount of nard that is placed is, is placed at 300 denarii, right? the same cost. Again, in Matthew's account, we only have the words large sum, but if you look at Mark's parallel account, Mark says, okay, it was, in fact, 300 denarii, the same as John said. In both accounts, the lavish act prompted a disciple, or more than one disciple, to decry the wasteful expenditure. And in both, a suggestion was made to alleviate the needs of the poor. And in both, Jesus interprets the act of the woman as preparation for his burial. So when you look at all that, it's really hard to imagine you actually have two different stories in view. Nearly everybody agrees, okay, this is the same story. This is the same event. So then why do we have the differences? The differences, I believe, are really crucial to understanding how the gospel writers use different pericopes. So let's talk about the three major differences. First of all, John gives us names. The woman's name was Mary, the sister of Lazarus. The disciple who decried the wasteful expenditure was Judas. Secondly, Matthew, as well as Mark, tell us the woman poured the ointment on Jesus' head. Whereas John mentions Jesus' feet and the fact that she washed Jesus' feet with her hair. Now friends, there's really no difficulty reconciling these two accounts when you simply recognize his whole body was anointed. It's not that difficult. In fact, the fact that Jesus interpreted the gesture as a preparation for his burial tells you that, in fact, his whole body was anointed. Jesus actually says in verse 12, she poured the ointment on my body. So it was the head all the way down to the feet. That's what actually happened. Third, the accounts clearly show up in different chronological places. Matthew and Mark, likewise, are not concerned with keeping the event in chronological order. But clearly John is. John tells us, again, the event occurred six days before the Passover. That would be Saturday, the Saturday before the triumphal entry, which happened on Sunday. Now, reading Matthew, if he didn't have John, we would assume it happened on Wednesday, right before he went to his cross, long after the triumphal entry. But it actually happened on the previous Saturday. So then why do we have these differences? Well, it's actually, again, the differences that explain to us the individual craft and the skill of the gospel writer. What about the difference between the anointing of the head and the feet? Well, if you recall, Matthew emphasizes the fact that Jesus is king. All through his gospel, he has been emphasizing the fact that Jesus is the rightful king. And, of course, kings were anointed where? On their heads. Matthew emphasizes the anointing of the true king on his head. 
In fact, it's a little curious detail in Matthew's crucifixion account, and that is his parody of the Jewish leadership failing to recognize that all the while they were enthroning a king. Jesus was anointed by Mary. Jesus was inaugurated by the soldiers with a twisted crown and a reed placed into his hand and a scarlet robe. Jesus was exalted, lifted up on a cross. And Jesus was declared to be king with a placard right over his head. This is the king. And Matthew says, yes, indeed, he resurrected with all authority. And Matthew's gospel was demonstrating that Psalm 2 was fulfilled. That God actually laughed at the vain attempts of the nations to undermine the rule of his son. You thought you were crucifying my son? You just anointed and inaugurated and enthroned my king. That's Matthew's approach to the cross. So Mary's anointing really does play a vital role in this parody, demonstrating that Jesus was indeed anointed. Anointed by a woman, no less, in a culture that placed a low value on women. Who ever heard of the anointing of a king by a woman? But when you read Matthew, the greatest king of all was just anointed. John, on the other hand, rarely mentions anything of Christ's kingship. Rather, I suspect that John emphasizes the anointing of Jesus' feet as well as emphasizing the woman's hair because John is the gospel writer, the only gospel writer that tells us that Jesus washed the disciples' feet and dried them with a towel. Matthew makes no mention of that account. And John is presenting to us Mary as a true servant disciple. Becoming a servant disciple is the only legitimate response that we can have to Jesus' true identity as God. And that's what John has been saying to us all along. He really is God. Become his disciple. The disciples, if you recall, in the upper room still had a great deal to learn about discipleship. They were still arguing about those positions in the kingdom at the right hand and the left hand. It's mine. No, it's mine. And Jesus stoops over and washes their feet. Now, because John keeps his account in strict chronological order, get this, Mary is found cleansing and anointing Jesus' feet before Jesus set that example in the upper room. Isn't that beautiful? Mary's act beautifully anticipates Jesus' own act Indicating at this point that I think she has a deeper understanding of Jesus' true identity than even the disciples do at this point. And if I can digress further for a moment, John, indeed, all the gospel writers have a very high view of women. Don't buy into this modern nonsense that those ancient writers had a low view of women. As, As we approach the cross and the resurrection, Curiously, it's the women who suddenly appear to be the most loyal disciples. It is the women who follow Jesus from Galilee all the way to the cross and all the way to the tomb. And it is the women who come first to the tomb. 
And it was disciple, it was the disciples who having followed Jesus for years and having heard him predict his death and resurrection just don't seem to get it. They flee at the moment of his trial and they're still arguing about who's greatest in the kingdom. Now it is true that men were much more likely than women to be arrested and executed by the Romans on suspicion of revolutionary activity. That is true. But even in the upper room, as Jesus is stooped over and washing their feet, while he's doing that, Luke tells us, quote, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So can, can you actually imagine Mary just entering into that dispute? No, 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 I think it's me. Like, let's say that she was actually there in the upper room. No, I think it's me. I'm the greatest. You can't even imagine that. Right? So, that's why I think we have the difference between the feet and the head. Now, what about the chronological differences between the accounts? The answer, again, I think is clear enough in what I've already said, but let's really make it explicit. John's very strict chronological approach, again, situates the foot anointing before Jesus' similar act in the upper room. But Matthew has a vested interest in situating that story closer to the actual death of Jesus. Had Matthew kept the story of Mary and her anointing in chronological order, we, we would have forgotten by it by now. I mean, that would have happened way back in Matthew 20. We would have long since forgotten about it. All right? Again, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, those are really full days. So Matthew brings that story up, and he tells it on a Wednesday, right before Jesus is going to be arrested by Judas. Further, Matthew situates the story right beside the story of Judas' betrayal. In Matthew's gospel, Judas' betrayal becomes the antithesis to the astonishingly lavish, worshipful faith of the woman. In fact, if you look at Matthew's account, we have a pair of contrasting pericopes. You read them back to back. You have an extravagant act of worship and an extraordinary act of betrayal, and we read about them back to back. Now, notice in verse 15 also the price of the blood money that Judas accepted as payment for Jesus, a mere 30 shekels of silver. That paltry sum was the price of a slave. Exodus 21 and verse 32 says, If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give their master 30 shekels of silver. So curiously, Matthew is the only gospel writer to tell us this little trifling sum. And why does he do that? Undoubtedly, Matthew wants to highlight the contrast, the extraordinary contrast between the enormous value that the woman placed on Jesus and Judas's blood money. He traded him for a slave. The irony is poignant in the extreme. The woman brings her best to Jesus, and Judas betrays him for a trifle. So that's why I think you have their chronological differences. Now let's deal with one more really startling difference. And it's this difference, I think, that is really going to speak to our mothers today on Mother's Day. Why doesn't Matthew name the woman? That was dramatic. All right. Why doesn't Matthew name the woman? And that question actually heightens a second. 
Why in verse 13, look at the text, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Does that strike you as odd? How do you tell a story about a woman for as long as the world endures and you don't even know her name? Like, why not tell us her name, Matthew? Isn't that weird? Now, I won't do to say that Matthew just assumed you could go bring John's gospel. Scholars almost all agree that John's gospel was written later. Matthew had no idea John was going to tell this story. So he tells the story of this nameless woman and says her story is going to keep on being told to the end of the world. Like, why? What's her name, Matthew? Well, the answer, I think, is actually very, very simple. If you look at the broader context in which Matthew situates his pericope, Matthew is going to do something very interesting. Now again, remember that Matthew tells us these back-to-back stories. You've got the story of the woman who worships Jesus with this extraordinary act of kindness, and then you've got Judas who betrays Jesus. You've got these two stories, right? But these two stories actually follow Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse. And Matthew, in the Olivet Discourse, records a unique section of that discourse that is unique to Matthew. He's the only one that tells the story. Matthew tells Jesus' illustration of the sheep and the goats. And this story of this nameless woman and Judas follows the story of the sheep and the goats, or the illustration of the sheep and the goats. And Matthew tells us in the previous chapter the coming king is going to divide all humanity into two groups, those who worship him and those who betray him, just like the unnamed woman and Judas. But would you notice... In Matthew 25, verses 34 through 40, how Matthew describes the sheep. And would you read these verses in light of the unnamed woman that follows? Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now notice two things. First, the king observes and rewards the actions of those who do things in his name, giving food to the hungry, ministering to the poor, and visiting the sick. And second, notice the ones receiving these rewards from the king are just astonished by these rewards. With incredulity, they ask in verse 37, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we clothe you? When did we visit you? Isn't that interesting? They're getting these rewards. I don't even know why. When did we do all this for you? 
These sheep just go around so innocently, quietly, and humbly that they're surprised to learn the king even noticed. He actually knows their names. He took note of their deeds. Like, that's a shock to us. The sheep are the nameless people of the world serving the king. But the world doesn't know their names. Now, of course, they all have names. But the point is, they're not seeking attention and notoriety for themselves. They didn't come to the king with a famous name and a whole list of accomplishments, demanding their rewards, like, get in line, where's all my rewards, right? These are not like the disciples who are arguing in the upper room, like, who's going to be greatest? No, I deserve that position at the right hand. No, they're not like that at all. These are the nameless people, like the nameless woman in Matthew 26 who sees Jesus for who he truly is. And they worship him through acts of selfless service to others, not looking for any reward. But here's the great irony. It is the nameless servant who was immortalized for as long as the gospel endures. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 26. As long as the gospel endures, this nameless servant will be immortalized. Now again, we know her name was Mary from John's gospel, and I'm glad we know her name. But Matthew leaves off naming her to emphasize her selfless, beautiful act. Now again, I'm glad to know from John's account it was Mary because Mary receives this incredible blessing from the Lord. Her brother was resurrected, and she responds appropriately. But I'm equally glad to have an account where she's not named because it tells us that, look, what should really drive us is not name recognition. What should really drive and motivate us is thanksgiving for what God has done for us. Our, our names are not important. They don't matter. So if we can really apply this in God's kingdom, human values are, up, are upended. The nameless servant receives the greatest reward. And the true king remembers every, every act of kindness, every broken bottle of perfume, every meal made for the sick, every visitation to the hospital, every ministry to the poor. The true king just remembers every detail of it. Even if history forgets your name, the king remembers. So what does it matter? What does it matter if your name never goes down in history? But the judgment seat of Christ, he says, I remember every little detail. It is true that much of Christianity today is about name recognition. And that's unfortunate. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you do your deeds to be seen by men. And guess what? You already have your reward. I mean, they saw you. That's your reward. You pray so that everybody hears you. Well, they heard you. That's your reward. You fast. Everybody sees you. Well, they saw you. That's your reward. Go enjoy your recognition. But in the church, is one name that actually matters, and his name is Jesus Christ. Now, again, it's Mother's Day. And can we just observe how many of these rewardable activities the Son of Man acknowledges involve being a mother? Jesus is not present for any of us to wash his feet. We can't anoint his head today. We'd love to, wouldn't we? But we can't do that. 
So how might we apply Mary's act in our own context? Well, in verse 40, Jesus seems to have even the little children in mind. When he refers to the least of these, my brothers, Jesus loved the little children. To do something for a child, the least of Jesus' brothers, Jesus says, you did it for me. You did it for me. So look at what he says in verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. So I want to know, who constantly feeds your kids? Keep reading. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. How many times, moms, have you refilled that little sippy cup? I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. There is an enormous amount of time and paperwork that goes into adoption and fostering. And nine times out of ten, guess who does 99% of it? At least in our case, it's the mom. Verse 36, I was naked and you clothed me. Who clothes your kids? When my daughter was very young... I was very proud of myself. I'm not supposed to tell stories about my kids, but she's right in front of me. I went off to the store, and I bought my daughter a very, what I thought was a very cute little shirt. And I brought it home, and I showed it to my wife. And she said, that's nice. That will fit in two years. (laughs) And then she said, how much did you pay for that, by the way? I said, I'm not telling. To the best of my knowledge, I don't think I've ever purchased any other clothing for any of my three kids, I, I, except for running shoes. I, I get running shoes for my daughter, that's true. In fact, years ago, when Asher came home, I shouldn't tell this story, it's not in my notes, but anyway, um, we went to the airport to, to greet Ann and Asher as they got off the airplane. I had Colette and Colin with me, they were still quite young, of course, and I had Colette dressed and ready to go, and... She had little leggings on, this little shirt on, and at least I thought it was a shirt. And later my wife said to me, why did you dress her like that? I'm like, it was in her drawer. She's like, that's a dress from like two years ago. I'm like, oh, I thought it was a shirt. All right, who clothes your kids, all right? Thankfully, my wife takes care of all that for us, all right? And keep reading. I was sick, and you visited me. So who do your kids go to when they're sick? Are they bang up their knees and their elbows and bloody their clothes. I mean, fall off their bike. Who do they go to? What Jesus is doing in this passage is rewarding. Rewarding the things that the world would regard as mundane. And for every mother, there was a great deal of the mundane. Am I right about that? There was a great deal of the mundane. I mean, the laundry just keeps piling up. I get it, right? But Jesus says the mundane, the little details that you keep on engaging in, the next meal, the next cup of water, the next clothing, it's all there. It just keeps on happening over and over and over again. When you feed your kids and you comfort them in sickness and you clothe them and you nurture them day in and day out, here's what Jesus says. He says this to your mothers, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my little brothers, You did it to me. Friends, Jesus himself had a mother whom he highly regarded. 
to his last moments on the cross. And Jesus remembers all those little details that our mothers engage in day in and day out. Shall we pray together? Father, we're thankful for our mothers. We're thankful for the extraordinary task that you've given to them, Lord, of raising children. We're thankful, Lord, for the time, the enormous amounts of time that they invest in their children. We pray that today would be a very special day for them. And Father, we're thankful that you notice everything. Some of our women are not called to be mothers in a biological sense, as Joseph has mentioned. But Lord, you have called us to do so many extraordinary little things, day in and day out. In some cases for our fellow workers, in some cases for students, in some cases for extended family, for nieces and nephews. Lord, I just pray that all of us, men and women, children, teenagers, would all just find great delight in the little acts that you appoint for us day by day. We're thankful for a king who remembers all the little deeds that we engage in. The world may long forget us. Our names will be forgotten. Lord, no one in this room will probably ever have a name that will go down in history. We thank you, Lord, that your son remembers. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.